And now hear God's holy word from Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter one, as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for the way that you worked out the salvation of man through this man, Jesus, who was fully man and fully God, born of a virgin. We pray that you would impress these things upon our hearts today as we study them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. On April 12th, 1961, Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first human to orbit the earth. He became the first man in space. And when he came back to earth, he was famously quoted as having said, I looked and I looked, but I didn't see God. Now, whether he actually said that is highly disputed. I think Gagarin was a Christian. He was baptized in the Russian Orthodox Church. He later supported the rebuilding of a cathedral that Joseph Stalin had torn down, destroyed. It was Nikita Khrushchev who was always spouting anti-Christian propaganda. Khrushchev is the one who quoted Gagarin as saying, I looked and I looked, but I didn't see God. But nevertheless, the phrase became kind of a motto for the advances of science and technology over the supposed ignorance of the Christian faith. You know, Gagarin went to space and he didn't see God. Checkmate, Christians. You know, there, there's the end of your faith. But no Christian scholar and no pastor and no writer that I've ever heard of or ever read, no one has ever suggested that God was just hanging out somewhere beyond the atmosphere, just beyond the reach of our sight. But if we could get far enough up, then maybe we could see him face to face if we could get up in the sky high enough. That a man would go up into orbit and circle the earth a few times and think that he had definitively put to rest the question of the existence of God is like a little boy searching for Africa in his bathtub. I went to that end of the bathtub, and I went to that end of the bathtub, and I didn't find Africa. Therefore, Africa does not exist. But that's the hubris. That's the, that's the pride of the unbelieving rationalist who has the presupposition that if something is not reproducible, if it's not observable in the controlled conditions that I have established, then there's no basis for belief. What he fails to realize is that his bathtub is too small. Even his near-Earth orbit is too small. He's not looking for the answers in the right places. He's not looking for answers in the right way. 
When it comes to the core doctrines of the Christian faith, such as the virgin birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, not to mention all the other miracles in the Bible, the rationalist is convinced these are pious legends at best, which are easily dismissed and easily discredited by modern science. These are all big fish stories just designed to top the claims of other ancient religions. And the virgin birth especially was just this lame attempt to cover up an embarrassing secret in a gullible age. That's the position of the rationalist. But are we smarter? Are we, are we less gullible than the people of New Testament times? Even a casual reading of the Gospels reveals that people in the first century were just as skeptical as we are about virgin births and resurrections. Somehow we have this idea that people believed in miracles at a time where people were so ignorant of nature that they didn't think a miracle was contrary to nature. Was that really the case? What was Joseph's response to Mary when she told him that she was expecting? He wanted to put her away quietly. He wanted to take care of things in a way that would protect her reputation. And Joseph didn't believe a word of Mary's story until an angel came and convinced him otherwise. Why? because Joseph knew just as well as any modern obstetrician that women do not have babies by themselves. We've known that from the beginning of time. So it isn't original and it isn't enlightened and it's not particularly insightful when someone says the virgin birth of Jesus is scientifically impossible. Hey, Joseph already said that. Hop on board, Joseph said that. Mary said, how can this be? I have not known a man. Mary said it's impossible. Virgin birth always has been and always will be scientifically impossible unless the normal processes are overruled. And it happened. One time in history, it happened. Jesus was born of a virgin. And if we wanna to begin to question whether that's plausible or believable, let's not say that ancient man was ignorant or uninformed or pretend that these accounts were just made up out of thin air. They, they weren't ignorant of the basic realities of birth and death. It's, it's evident that the men who wrote these things believed that they happened. And so the basis for belief and the basis for disbelief are the same today as they were 2,000 years ago. If Joseph lacked faith to trust God, if he lacked humility to believe that Mary uh, was innocent and holy, Joseph could have disbelieved the virgin birth just the same as any modern rationalist could have disbelieved it. And any modern man who has Faith in the God of creation and faith in his promises can accept the virgin birth as easily as Joseph did. So I'd like for us all to meditate for just a few minutes this morning on the significance of the Christian doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus as we celebrate the birth of Jesus together today. And to take as a starting point this, any attempt to explain the virgin birth in naturalistic terms is a mistake. We can't explain creation or the Trinity, or the two natures of Jesus using scientific language. By that I mean this, that, that we're not going to get there by trying to figure out how this worked mechanically or technically. We're, we're never gonna get there, it's impossible because the scriptures don't give us that information. We don't have that revelation and any attempt to figure this out mechanistically or technologically is, 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 is gonna lead us nowhere. Uh, it's gonna be unsatisfying. Um, however, uh, you know, well, let's say add to that, we can't even fully understand these things, but we do approach them by faith. The creeds 
for example, don't try to explain the Trinity or explain the mechanics of the resurrection or the virgin birth. They just tell the story. They just say, this is what happened as Matthew does. Matthew puts this out in a very straightforward way. Just a very, almost, I would say, a, 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 a dry, factual way. Verse 18, he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit, period. It just happened. And this is how it happened. I'm going to tell you how it happened. So let's meditate on the wonder and the mystery of the incarnation and the virgin birth of Jesus. Not as, not as doubters, uh, not like the serpent in the garden who says, did, did God really say but let's come to it as Jesus' people celebrating the way that our salvation was brought about, how it was accomplished. So I want to explore the question today, why was Jesus born of a virgin? Why is that significant or important? Why does our faith rise or fall on this fact? The first answer is that Mary had to be born, uh, uh, that, that Mary had to be a virgin because Jesus is the son of God. The one to whom she gave birth is none other than Emmanuel, God with us, as Isaiah is quoted by Matthew. And, and such a one, the one who is Emmanuel, the one who is God with us, can have no other father than the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. Jesus, as the Son of God, comes from God the Father. Father Joseph or Father Abraham or Father David or Father Adam are not his only masculine ancestors. Because he was born of a virgin, we learn that Jesus had no biological human father. Joseph adopted him. And Jesus maintained throughout his life that his father was the Lord. When Jesus was found at the temple teaching at the age of 12, uh, Mary and Joseph are all worried and they're upset. And uh, they say, what were you doing here teaching at the temple? And Jesus said, don't you know that I was in my father's house doing my father's business? Jesus refers to his father continually throughout the gospels. I and my father are one. He who has seen me has seen the father. Whoever loves me loves my father. In my father's house are many mansions. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he taught us to pray to his father um, by saying our father who are in heaven. So we conclude by all these references that God is the father of Jesus. And the fact that Jesus was born to a virgin points to the fact that Jesus is the utterly unique son of the father. All who trust in Jesus are sons of of the Father in, in one sense, Jesus taught us to pray, our Father. Jesus incorporates us as adopted sons and daughters into his sonship. Before Jesus ascends to the Father, he says, I'm going to my Father and your Father. I'm going to my God and your God because Jesus is the obedient Son. He wraps us up into his sonship. But he's still the unique Son. He's the only begotten before all worlds. He's the son begotten before creation. He's the promised seed, the one prophesied by the prophets in a unique way that you and I are not and could never be the son of God. 
Jesus is the son of God, not just because God chose him for a special mission or because he was morally pure. I'm sure you've encountered um, Mormon or Jehovah's Witness uh, theology that teaches that Jesus became God or because he was special, he, he grows into his deity. And so, so can you, you can grow into uh, the kind of deity that Jesus grew into, but that's, that's false. Jesus is God's son because he was begotten by God. Not just his role, not his function, not his character come from God alone, but his being is from God. His nature is God's nature. C.S. Lewis said about this, he says, when you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. A bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. By analogy then, when God the Father begets Jesus, he begets God. And that's, that's good, that's helpful, but I still wanna be so careful here. All these words mean things and all these words matter. So I wanna tread carefully. Jesus did not become the son of God in Mary's womb. We do not say that Jesus must be the son of God because he didn't have a human father. No, he's the son of God because he's the eternal son of the father, begotten of the father before all worlds. The virgin birth didn't make him God. It didn't make him divine. It didn't make him the son. However, the fact that he was born of a virgin points us to Jesus as the son that the prophets talked about, the son without a human father, the son whose father was God. The virgin birth is the sign that identifies Jesus as the unique son of God, which is why Matthew quotes Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter seven, is quoted here in Matthew, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So the one through whom God dwells with us, the Emmanuel, is the son born of the virgin. The virgin birth didn't make Jesus the son of God. He was born of a virgin because he was the son of God. And so that's the first answer. Why is the virgin birth important? Because it points to Jesus as the son of God, the son of the father. Secondly, another answer to this question, why was the virgin birth necessary, is that this was the means that God appointed for joining together in one person, both deity and humanity. Jesus did not have a mother in heaven and he doesn't have a father on earth. But through the work of the Holy Spirit upon the Virgin Mary, God sent his son into the world as the one who is truly God and truly man. There may be other ways that God could have sent his son to us. God could have created Jesus as a complete human being in heaven and then sent him to descend upon the earth when he was 30 years old or 33. He could have sent him to descend on the earth without any human parent but then it would be hard for us to understand exactly how Jesus was as human as we are or fully shared in our experience as men, how he grew through all the stages of childhood and adulthood. Uh, we, would, we would miss that if, if God had just sent him to earth as a fully formed adult. On the other hand, it might have been possible for Jesus to come into the world with two human parents and with his full divine nature united to him at some other point in the future. At some point in his life, he becomes the God-man. But then it might be difficult for us to understand that Jesus was truly God. God didn't choose either of these options, but rather ordained that through the work of the Spirit and through the womb of the Virgin, 
He combined deity and humanity. So, because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in an extraordinary way, we see his true deity. And because he was born of Mary in the usual way, we see his humanity. His humanity is revealed. So in the virgin birth, God combines deity and humanity. And this is how God chooses to do this. One more answer we could come up with and we could give to the necessity of the virgin birth is that this is the way that God demonstrates that the Adamic curse, which has, which has always passed from generation to generation, the Adamic curse is being broken up. It underscores Jesus's true humanity, but without inherited sin. All men, all men, all women have inherited guilt and corruption and a sin nature from their first father, Adam. The fact that Jesus doesn't have a human father points us to the fact that the ordinary line of descent from Adam is interrupted. Last week we studied this genealogy and we see a lot of begats and every sinful father begat a sinful, a sinful son. But now we have this interruption. Jesus was not begotten of Adam in precisely the same way as every other man was begotten of man. And the guilt and the corruption and the sin nature of Adam are not inherited by Jesus. Now again, I want to be super careful. I want to be clear on what we're saying. The virgin birth is not the accomplishment of Jesus's sinlessness, but it's a sign pointing to Jesus' sinlessness. Jesus was already sinless before his incarnation. But some people somewhere have, 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 have attached uh, to this idea that the Adamic sin nature flows down to humanity through male genetics. And because Jesus only received Mary's genes, then Jesus was clean. I don't think we want to start teaching that men are depraved and women aren't. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll die on that hill. I mean, we're, we're, all, we're all depraved, right? Um, it's not that men are depraved and men only pass on the sinful gene. Mary was no less a sinner than Joseph. The Bible never teaches that Mary was sinless. Others in church history have taught that Jesus didn't receive a sin nature because Mary had never given in to the sinful passions that accompany intercourse. And therefore, she was undefiled a virgin in perpetuity. Well, again, the Bible never says that. The Bible never says that marital relations or the passion that goes along with, with marriage are dirty or shameful or sinful. The Bible never says that. In fact, Joseph didn't know his wife until after the birth of Jesus. Read verse 25. He did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. But we know that he knew her after she brought forth her firstborn son because we meet Jesus' other brothers in Matthew 12. So he knew eventually she was not a virgin in perpetuity. So this, this superstitious and degrading view of normal, faithful, godly sexuality has nothing to do with why Jesus was born of a virgin. In fact, we need to repudiate that as quite shameful and idolatrous and, and a false doctrine that, that we oppose. Uh, that's not, that has nothing to do with why Jesus was a virgin. I'm sorry, Jesus was born of a virgin. The point of breaking up the Adamic line was to show that a new beginning had to be made. A new creation had to be initiated. This wasn't a beginning out of nothing. 
the, the role Mary shows us, um, the, the role of Mary shows us that the old order is the object of this creative work, this redemptive work. And what God is doing, he is doing to and in and on the old natural man. Yet, by excluding the male and including only the female, he's showing us this is something that man by himself cannot do. It's something Paul goes into in Romans 5 where he talks about from Adam, death only spreads. If you, if you want to remain in Adam, all you get is more death. But in Christ, righteousness and life have spread. And this interruption through Christ breaks up that spreading of death under Adam. Man is inadequate for the work of bringing the Savior into the world because of man's sin nature. So the virgin birth of Jesus carries with it this message of the initiative of God's grace and the hopelessness and the guilt of man apart from God's initiative, apart from God's grace. Jesus comes into the world in such a way that shows us he is one with humanity and yet sinless because there's a decisive break with the old humanity, with the old genealogy and a new start. Jesus is not a sinful man accomplishing his own salvation. He is the second man, the second Adam, the Lord from heaven, the Son of God incarnate. So the virgin birth is necessary in that it is a sign that Jesus is the holy one, the sinless one. Adam's curse has been broken up. And, and in Jesus, that curse is beginning to be lifted. God made the first move through the virgin birth. So far, if you're keeping track, in the virgin birth, we see that Jesus is the unique son of God. We see that in him, the uniting of the divine and the human come together. We see the Adamic curse interrupted and broken up. Fourth, the virgin birth is a fulfillment of a promise. We could ask, is belief in the virgin birth a central pillar of our faith or is, a peripheral, is it a peripheral issue? Well, it depends. It depends on how important are the promises of God and how important are the answers and the fulfillment of his promises. How important is that? Does God keep his word or not? One of the very first promises that God makes after the fall of Adam was that he was going to send a deliverer to crush the head of the serpent. And he had identified that deliverer as the seed of the woman. And then from there on throughout the Old Testament, we're looking for the seed of the woman. There's this expectation, there's hope for the promised savior. And there's always this worry, there's this anxiety when women are barren and women all over uh, the, the Bible are barren. And if the woman can't deliver a son, then who's gonna deliver us? Who's gonna save us? Who's gonna rescue us? So God over and over and over again gives barren women children showing his intent to bring about salvation through the holy offspring. Men can't save themselves from the serpent by themselves. God working through women sends hope and salvation and through the seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent. Now, in the birth of Jesus, he ultimately fulfills that promise in a way that nobody fully expected. It's through the seed of the woman, not the man, that our salvation is accomplished. Even when the Old Testament saints read Genesis 3 and Isaiah 7, and they read that a virgin shall conceive, I'm sure they read it thinking, yeah, yeah, a young woman will get married and she'll have a baby the normal way, and that's how Messiah will come. That's how our salvation will come. 
It isn't until later that they're able to put together and realize what Isaiah is really saying here. But that's how God fulfills his promises. He tells his people what he's going to do, and they listen in faith, but they have no idea of the scope of his plan until he actually fulfills it. And when he fulfills it, it's always beyond their grandest and their wildest expectations. It's like your daughter asking you for Christmas if you would buy her My Little Ponies. And you say, yeah, My Little Ponies, that's great. That sounds like a great Christmas gift. Let's do that. And then on Christmas, she awakes to find that you have bought her a real horse farm with a stable full of real ponies. That's how the Lord fulfills his promises. He always outpaces our expectations and our understanding. I'm not bragging on myself, but my wife asked for the 10-cup Cuisinart uh, 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 food processor, and I got her the 14-cup Cuisinart uh, food processor. The fulfillment always outstrips the promise. The fulfillment always always outpaces our expectations. Well, that's how the Lord fulfills his promises. He does it this way, which is why we can never claim to fully understand heaven or the second coming. We can never fully claim to know everything about eternity. Whatever you think it's gonna be, go ahead, knock yourself out, think about it. What's it gonna be? It's not gonna be that, And it's going to be something else that is about a billion times greater than anything that you can imagine. God always fulfills his promises, and he does it away in an incredible way beyond our imagination. So the virgin birth is only important to the Christian faith if we believe that God keeps his promises. And he has. He has kept his promise to crush the serpent's head through the seed of the woman. Fifthly, It's significant theologically that Jesus had to be born from above, that he be born of the spirit and not through normal human generation because I need to be born from above and you need to be born of the spirit from above. We need to be united to someone who was born from above and not entirely born of Adam. All of us who have believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ are born again and our birth is analogous to the birth of Jesus himself. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Our new birth comes by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who moves upon Mary and overshadows her and gives her a son is the same Spirit who draws us to God and gives us life. So to become a Christian is no more a natural possibility than the words becoming flesh. In other words, if the virgin birth is an impossibility, so is regeneration. If the virgin birth is an impossibility, so is salvation. Jesus's extraordinary, miraculous, humanly impossible birth opens up the way for our extraordinary, miraculous, humanly impossible birth. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, how can you believe that there's any hope of salvation? That just some man was born that worked out something, was pleasing to God, but He was born and lived the way that the rest of us did. He wasn't nothing special about his origin or his death or his life. For these reasons, the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus is a theological necessity, and it's vital to the Christian faith. Just as the empty tomb points to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, so does the virgin womb point to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you have one without the other? If you deny the empty tomb, what kind of resurrection are you talking about? Though, you know, the, the kind of the mainline 
uh, liberal churches always do this around Easter. They'll talk about resurrection, but for them, it's just kind of a metaphor for, for, for second chances or something like that. It, there's no reality for them. What kind of resurrection is that? It's none that I want anything to do with. The virgin womb also points us to an understanding of who Jesus is and what he is here to do. The virgin birth is the essential historical indication of the incarnation. It brings out the nature and purpose and bearing of the work of God in salvation. And the denial of the virgin birth is a denial of Jesus as the promised savior. If we then drift from this doctrine or become embarrassed of it or reject it, you've lost the core of biblical teaching. After all, the biggest argument in favor of the virgin birth is it happened because God's word said it happened, and I believe God's word. And you're saying, why don't you say at the beginning, and we could have been done 20 minutes ago, and we didn't have to go on it. We could have been done in five minutes. It's true because God said it's true. It's true because God said it happened, and God is reliable, and his word is trustworthy. The virgin birth is certainly amazing. I'm not denying that. It might seem unbelievable or incredible, but it presents to us one of those all or nothing challenges the way that the resurrection does. Either Jesus rose bodily from the grave or we have no hope. Either this is true or there is no hope and there is no point in doing what we do. There is no God, there is no life, there is no future. By the same token, either Jesus was really and truly born of a virgin or we're living a lie. Either he was the son of God incarnate, or he was just another man as incapable of saving himself as we are. It's all or nothing. It's Jesus or nothing. And the virgin birth is an irreducible aspect of the person and work of Jesus. Now, if all this is true, what does that mean for us and what does it mean for the world? Very quickly. It means that this man who was born of a virgin is the same king who was promised in 2 Samuel. The whole point of that genealogy that we studied last week was to show that Jesus is the son of David who is the promised king who will rule on his throne forever and ever. And the angel builds on that and introduces Jesus to Joseph as the victor. He's the deliverer. He's the conqueror. Call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. His name means Yahweh saves. It's that name freighted with all the victory language we saw on Christmas Eve. And when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he took his seat as the victorious God-man on the throne of the cosmos, and he will reign forever and ever and ever as conqueror and king. Now, today, right now, a man is on the throne of heaven, one of us. And now that he has passed through this life, through the grave, onto glory, he is untouchable. Absolutely nothing can threaten his rule or bring his plans to naught. Death is behind him, and an unending future of glory and peace and joy with his people stretches out before him. That's the team I want on, by the way. I want the eternal king to be my king. That's the one I want to be united to. And the virgin birth confirms that Jesus is that king. He is the son of the promise that was foretold by the prophets. He is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. The virgin birth demonstrates how completely incapable we are of saving ourselves. We possess no capacity 
for producing a flawless, sinless God-man to be our savior by natural means. That's not a condemnation on us because we're human, but because we are disobedient humans. We are fallen humans. We are depraved humans. So we need to be saved by something apart from us. Salvation comes from the outside. So in the virgin birth, humanity is involved, but only as a passive, young, faithful maiden. It is significant that as we open the gospel, we don't find a man who is an active agent, heroically working out his own redemption, heroically achieving and meriting God's favor. No, that's not what we see. We open the gospel and we find first a woman who passively receives Jesus, which is the same way we all receive Jesus. We all receive Jesus the same way that Mary did, which by that I mean you trust him. You lay aside your doubts, you lay aside your objections, you drop your defenses, and you trust him entirely. You don't understand? You ask, how is this possible? Well, nobody who is there quite understood either. And no one can even begin to understand unless they have the spirit of God dwelling in them. So we almost put ourselves in the position of Mary and Joseph and say, I don't understand. I can't even begin to understand, but that's not a qualification for belief. That's not a qualification for trust. I don't understand, but where else am I gonna go? Who else has the words of life? So I'm gonna trust, I'm gonna submit, I'm gonna push everything across the table, and I'm gonna go all in on Jesus and all in on his work and trust the God that keeps his promises. The virgin birth demonstrates that God alone takes the initiative and holds the position of sovereign in redemption and salvation. So during this Christmas season, we rejoice in our Savior who comes to us like no other man has ever come in history, like no one will ever come again. The sinless God-man who comes through the virgin womb to live and die and leave an empty tomb behind him to save us from our sins and to reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we continue to rejoice in your son who came to us in this extraordinary, incredible way. And it's through him that you have ordained the salvation of mankind. And so Father, help us to lay aside our doubts and our fears and our our skepticism and our, our cynicism and embrace him fully and truly. We ask you this in Jesus' name, amen.